Well, as we enter the Christmas week and our minds certainly fill with anticipation of spending time with loved ones, with friends and family, some that we haven't seen for quite some time, or just the traditions that we all enjoy that surround Christmas, uh, exchanging gifts and, and uh, favorite recipes and all of those things. And of course, we turn our minds toward the wonder of the incarnation of Christ. There are various ways that we think about that. There is the sort of the historical angle that has to do with all the rumblings of the responses of King Herod to the birth of a child in his kingdom who might be his rival, he believes, or the visit of the Magi, all of those things recorded to us by, by Matthew. Or there's the prophetic angle where we see all the details of his birth given to us hundreds of years before it ever took place in the prophets. There's, of course, the personal angle, which takes us into the experience of Mary and even into the quiet context of a cattle stall on the night he was born, all the way to the very ponderings of her heart. And then there is the theological angle, which tries to capture the mystery and the majesty of God becoming man. And it's that that I want us to think on this morning, the theological angle which is presented to us best in John's gospel, John chapter 1, and particularly in verse 14, where John tells us about the coming of Christ. Now, the entire section of John from verse 1 through 18 is about the identity of what John calls the Word or the Logos in the Greek. He uses that term tapping into a rich Old Testament tradition or framework when it comes to the idea of the Word. The Word or the Word of the Lord has a lot of of substance, a fabric we might say, that's woven into the entire Old Testament. That phrase is seen throughout the Old Testament, connecting God with God's activity over and over again. The word of the Lord revealed certain things. The word of the Lord delivered certain people. The word of the Lord saved those who called on him. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens and the earth were made. And of course, as we read Genesis chapter 1, we take note of that repeated phrase, and God said, and God said, over and over again, and God said, and, and Moses tells us that when God said, it was so. So the word of the Lord is an active part, an active force over and over again. And of course, when John tells us in verse 1 of John's gospel that this word, this logos, was with God in the beginning, it becomes an obvious reference to that word, the word that was with God, the word that was the creating force of creation. John tells us that the word was with God, and he even tells us that the word was God. Now, Jews, when they hear all of this, they would have made immediate connections with their, if you want to say, theology of the word, their understanding of the word, that act of force that was spoken of throughout the 
the Old Testament. It was more than just the vocalization of God's thoughts when they hear about the Word of God. The Word of God is presented as a kind of personality. Even in Proverbs chapter 8, it pictures the wisdom of God as a, a personality that is present with God in creation. That really strikes at the heart of how a Jewish person would have thought about the word in Hebrew, the word devar in Hebrew. As I said, not just a vocalization of God's thoughts, but the manifestation of God's power. So John captures all this in these profound opening words and grabs the attention of every reader who would have been familiar with the Old Testament and tells them or says to them that no matter what you have viewed as the creating force residing with God at the beginning, standing behind all creation, I'm here to tell you who that word is. And I'm here to tell you how he has revealed himself to us. And so when we come down to verse 14, which is our focus this morning in verse 14, we understand the richness of John's statement when he says, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is John now moving from the identity of the word and who he is to his own personal experience with the word, what he's seen and what he's beheld. Because that powerful word that was there at the beginning with God and forming everything that we see and know, that powerful word that John just described as being with God and being God, that powerful word, he says, became flesh. And John says it provided an experience of his glory unlike any other. Now that is the theological story of Christmas. That is the, the reality of what we call the incarnation, the the coming in karnas, or what we might say in Greek, sarkos, in flesh. God becoming human. God becoming human flesh. All this happened through the birth of Christ. All that is sort of summed up there in the manger. But I want us to think this morning about the two elements of what John says was his experience with this incarnated word, this incarnated God, and, and to think about them and how they are both initiated on Christmas night. We can begin with what we might say is Jesus' embodied glory that John talks about here, his embodied glory. This is how he begins by simply saying the word became flesh. It's an interesting way that John chooses to word that. He doesn't say that the word put on flesh or clothed himself as though somehow the body that he had was some sort of disguise or some sort of shell that he just filled up. We're not given the impression that he temporarily took on the form of flesh only to shed it one day, to set it aside. He didn't 
We might even say he didn't adopt a body temporarily. He says that he became flesh. Christ completely, permanently became human through this incarnation. So from the time of his birth and, and even now, while we stand here today, in heaven and for all eternity, the God who before all of this was only spirit, that's what the scripture tells us about God, John 4 says, God is spirit. That is to say, he's not bodily in his form. But from this point, he became flesh. He became a human body. And even now, as he resides in heaven, he's in a glorified body. And all of this is not to suggest that somehow this was the creation of something brand new. This is, he's not trying to describe the fact that Jesus was created as some human being at this point. He's already told us that this word that became flesh already existed. He already existed. He was already with God. He was there at the beginning. He pre-existed eternally with God. He is as eternal as God, but not in his human body the way that he came on Christmas night. This is unique about him. Unlike any other birth, you and I didn't exist before we were conceived and born we don't speak about people that way. We certainly, you wouldn't ever hear anyone say, well, this is my son or my daughter who existed before me. We understand in, in the creation of man, there's a sequence, there's a, 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 a sort of coming forth from one to the next. And every one of us know that our existence begins at the physical conception of us in the womb but not with Jesus. He existed already. He just didn't exist in bodily form. He existed. He didn't didn't come into being. In fact, the language is very specific. He didn't become, the Greek word would have been genomai if he became something, but he was. As John says back in verse 1, he was. uh, The word ami in Greek indicates being he was and always is the God I am so this is the Christ who already existed and took on a human body even though he pre-existed and by the way this is John's whole point in the next verse in verse 15 when he adds the testimony of John the Baptist to verify this he says that John bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me or he has been before me would be a way that you could translate that. So, so he is the one who existed before me. This is the preexistent Christ. Before he was ever a man, he existed in the form of God. And yet without compromising any of that, that, that deity He became flesh. He became man. In every sense of the word, he became man. In fact, Luke goes on to tell us that when he was a baby, Luke 52, as he came forth from the womb and as he started to develop physically, that he also developed mentally and emotionally 
and even socially. He grew, Luke says, and in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. So there was even that human experience of development within him. And so this was something brand new. Even though he wasn't brand new, this was something brand new. He became flesh. He had never been flesh before. And, and he came to dwell among us in that way. This uh, is sometimes captured, uh, or this is, I should say, captured in Philippians chapter 2 in a way of, uh, of emptiness Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that he emptied himself and became or took on the form of man. And when we think about emptying or we think about pouring out, we, we, we think about kind of losing something or subtracting something. But as theologians have often said, if this is subtraction, it's subtraction by addition. He humbled himself or he emptied himself or he made himself low, not by setting, any, uh, setting aside any of his deity, but by adding to his deity a humanity. He took on not just flesh and blood, he took on human nature. He became human. Now that's difficult for some people to comprehend because when they think of human, they think of frail, they think of weak, and they think of sinful. As the old adage says, to err is human. But that's not really a true statement. That's not really what the Bible describes as human. Humanity, humanness, I should say, is not essentially sinfulness. We can hardly imagine a human being who doesn't sin, who isn't weakened by sin. We can hardly imagine a human being who isn't tempted or one who is completely pure, and yet that's what John is telling us. Jesus became flesh. He became human. In fact, we might even say he became more human than you and I. We're human, but we are marred humanness. We're imperfect humanness. He was human in the sense the humanness was meant to be. He was human in the sense that Adam and Eve were originally created in their humanness before they fell into sin. He was perfect, perfect human. He came without all of the imperfections, without all the weaknesses that we have, without all the sin that characterizes the rest of us. And yet he was fully, fully human. Now, John communicates all this by drawing on a, um, an Old Testament analogy. He says that he, the Word, became flesh. And then he says he dwelt among us. The word is actually skenao. It's a, uh, it's a word that relates to tents. Or in the Old Testament language, we would say tabernacle. Uh, you could translate this literally, he tabernacled. Or he pitched his tent among us. That's, that's what the word dwell literally means. It's a verb that is unique to John. It's not the typical word for dwelling. And, and he does it intentionally because he wants to draw on 
some Old Testament history to help us understand theologically a certain concept, that God came to dwell among us, to pitch his tent among us, it carries some theological connotations. And, and we could begin just by saying that, that there was a time when God dwelling with men and women was not such an unusual thing. In fact, this is the way God intended the world to be. We're told that when he created Adam and Eve in the garden, that God would regularly come and walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. So this was a regular experience of Adam in his state of innocence before he ever sinned. He dwelt with God in a kind of sweet and intimate communion that was personable, that was real, that was daily. But then sin came in and destroyed that connection and that communion between God and his created humanity and a great gulf opened up from this newly discovered sin and this infinitely pure God who couldn't dwell with sin. And from that point, God no longer directly dealt with man. God no longer directly communed with man. He no longer directly dwelled with, God, with man. There were no more casual strolls in the garden, no more face-to-face -face meetings God didn't walk with anyone anymore. He certainly didn't commune with them like a friend anymore. We were cut off from God. Had it not been for God, this amazingly good God, that would have been our, our fate forever. We would have been banished forever from His presence and from His glory. Never, ever to know Him again. But that's not His intent. And it wasn't his heart. He still wanted to dwell with the men and women that he made. And so he established a dwelling. It couldn't be the same because of the coming of sin. It couldn't be like it was in the garden. But he established a dwelling, a place where he could come and his presence could be with his people. And, and in the beginning, it was just this tent that he designed and he gave the design to Moses and to, uh, to his craftsmen to put together. It was a glorious, uh, elaborate, beautiful design that they came to know as the tent of meeting, or we sometimes trans translate the tabernacle. God lays out the plan for it beginning in Exodus chapter 25 and really carrying all the way through uh, the rest of the book of Exodus all the way through 40, all these intricate details about the tent, about its height, about its poles, about all of its little garlands. And God commanded that this tent be set up with all of its furnishings exactly as the instructions were given and that when that tent was set up, God would dwell there. And then you come to Exodus 33 and you get a little insight, a little more detail into this dwelling. Exodus 33, 9, we're told that when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, which had been with Israel leading them through the desert, you may remember coming out of Egypt and coming through the Red Sea, there was a physical representation of God, a pillar 
of either cloud or fire that guided them on their steps each day. But when Moses went into the tent, this pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And we read that the Lord would speak with Moses, and thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, we understand that as a a metaphorical kind of expression of intimacy, not a physical description of what was taking place, because as we go on in the context, Moses makes clear that there wasn't a face-to-face meeting in a physical sense. In fact, Moses, down in verse 18, says to the Lord, please show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." So even though there was a connection now, even though there was an experience of intimacy with Moses inside of the tent and God that metaphorically might be described as a face-to-face kind of intimacy, it still wasn't a physical face-to-face meeting. In fact, God says, physically, I can't show you fully who I am or you would die. Any human being who looked on me would die. And yet Moses, even though he had this experience unlike any other person, even though he went into the tent and he he had this kind of communion with God, even though he saw the glory of God, it, it was still wrapped in so much mystery so that he's left asking for more. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. He still felt like whatever was revealed in the tabernacle, that God's glory wasn't fully revealed to him. Now, this glory had been shown already a number of times. Exodus 16, when God was feeding Israel with manna and the manna came down, the Bible says the glory of the Lord was seen by all the people. At Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, when God was given the Ten Commandments, it says Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 40, whenever the tent was finally completed, we're told that the glory of the Lord came down and filled the tent. Later, in Leviticus, Moses gave instruction to Aaron and his sons to establish a priesthood And he gave the instruction for sacrifices to be made and for offerings of oils and grains. And he said, this is the thing the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And when Aaron had done all these things and and completed them, it's recorded in Leviticus 9.26, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So the glory of the Lord was was not just in that moment with Moses. The glory of the Lord was manifesting in other ways. As Israel, as as I said, as Israel traveled through the desert, the glory of the Lord was always before them in this pillar of, 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 of cloud and of fire. You read all those accounts, all those 
interactions, and in the end, you're still left wondering, what exactly is this glory? I mean, we understand what a cloud might look like. We understand what a pillar of fire might look like. But what really is all of that? There's a, still a mystery about it. Ezekiel, uh, much later, describes the glory of the Lord that was in the temple prior to the judgment of God and the destruction of that temple. He opens Ezekiel 1 with descriptions about a cloud and bright flashes of light and dazzling precious stones that reflected that light and rainbows and bright metals and wheels and voices and multiple faces and all these amazing creatures attending to the glorious scene all at once. And through more than 20 verses, Ezekiel is giving all these pictures trying to describe what he's seeing. And then after all of those images at the very end, He says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In other words, this wasn't really even a full description. This was was just kind of words that were uh, were, uh, an analogy of a likeness of the glory of the Lord. Or in other words, it's indescribable. I mean, I can put all these amazing words to it, but I really, I can't even describe it. This is just kind of what it was like. It's glory. Glory, by the way, which the psalm tells us is painted all around us in the creation, in the stars, the mountains, and the seas. Job talks about that in his, in his book, talks about the glories of the Lord revealed in creation. And he says, behold, these are the fringes of his ways and how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? Job's kind of stating the dilemma. We see the faint creation. We see the creation, I should say, and all of its majesty. And, 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 and even that, it's just like a whisper of the glory of God. And, and Job says, well, what would we do if God thundered? If God actually gave us more than a whisper, we couldn't stand it. We, we, he, he holds back his revelation of himself, just like he did with Moses. He holds back his full glory because you and I would be absolutely obliterated if we were to see it. All this helps us to understand John 1.14 and the amazing statement that John is saying to us here, that the Word became human and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. This is embodied glory. All the glory that was being revealed in a veiled sense all the way through the entire Old Testament. John is saying that Jesus Christ was the revelation of all that glory that had only been faintly known. So that if the glory of God is whispered in the unsearchable majesty of creation, if it is loudly spoken in the um, tabernacle, 
We might say it is shouted through the coming of Christ. At this point, you might imagine that if you were there that night, that Christmas night, when Christ came forth from the womb of Mary, you might imagine that there was kind of a, a hue, maybe a, a powerful light shining that filled that cradle and that stall, that entire corner of Bethlehem. You might get the impression that when Jesus learned to crawl and walk and everywhere he went throughout Galilee and Judea, he just kind of glowed luminescent with the glory of God. That, that if you were to look in the cradle, you wouldn't see just a baby, you would see more glory than Moses saw, the brightest blaze like the pillar of fire that was burning in front of Israel. But John doesn't leave us just with that. He says, He came and He tabernacled among us and we saw His glory, not just in a faint whisper, but we saw His glory as of the only Son of from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is how we saw His glory. We saw His glory in His nature. All the glory God had revealed up to that point was just a whisper. Now Christ comes with fullness, with brightness, we might say, revealed in a unique way in grace and truth, which brings us to the second element of John's experience. Not only did he see the embodied glory of God in Christ, but he saw Jesus' unique glory. That's what he gets at there at the second half of verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is unique glory because this is a unique Son. He was glory as of the only Son. Some translations have only begotten Son. That is really not the best sense of the word. The word is monogenes, from which we uh, is derived from the word genos, from which we get the word gene. It basically means a kind or a species. We know that's what uh, genes. That's why they're called genes because they carry the data that makes us unique in terms of our our species, who we are, and what we are. So monogenes speaks not about being begotten or born. It speaks of a certain kind or a certain species. And John is saying something about Jesus' spiritual species, if you will. And, and speaking of that, he says Jesus is mono. He's the only one. He's the one and only, the one of a kind. He's the only one who is so related to the Father in nature and essence so as to possess his glory and be known as his relation, his son. And so John says the glory that he witnessed was the glory as of the only son from God, the only one, the only person who could share the nature of God. Now you compare this to what we find described of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, when it says long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by His Son, who is, the writer says, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He revealed God more than the prophets, more than Moses. He revealed God more than the tabernacle with all of its glory. The writer of Hebrews is saying there was something unique about his revelation and something unique about his glory. He says he was the radiance, or some translations say the brightness, which is also legitimate. He was the radiance or the brightness of God's glory, which raises the question, what is brightness? What is radiance? Is it light? Is it a manifestation of light? Or we might even ask, what is light? What makes light shine? Light has no mass. The protons have no mass. There is no volume. There are no particles that can be captured and split. In a sense, light and its brightness can't be separated. There's, there's no such thing as light that doesn't shine or a shine that doesn't come from light. So for Jesus to be called the brightness or the, sh- the, 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 the radiance of God's glory, he's the shining forth of God. In that sense, he's inseparable. It's a, it's a profound way of the writer speaking about the nature of Christ here. The radiance of his glory. The, as one writer says, the brightness of the sun cannot be separated from the sun, and yet it is distinct. We are engulfed by the sun's brightness and yet not engulfed by the sun itself. So this is Christ. He's the radiance of God's glory. He, he combines all of this to, to give us some some sense of what he's saying about this man known as Jesus. And he even adds to that the explanation, the exact imprint of his nature, which is just another way of saying that he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the visible representation of God's glory, of God's nature. The sum, we might say, of all of God's character and attributes, which is basically what God's glory is. God's glory is his character And it's his attributes. You may remember when we were reading, when I was just reading to you a moment ago and Moses was asking to see the glory of God, show me your glory. God didn't respond by giving him a physical manifestation. God responded by saying that I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim my name before you. And then he says, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. That's his glory. His glory is his character. His glory is his nature. In fact, we're told in the next chapter, the Lord descended 
in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. D.A. Carson says you can take those two words, steadfast love, the Hebrew word chesed, and faithfulness, and you could easily translate them grace and truth. Hesed is translated grace many times in the Old Testament, and faithfulness is the idea of truthfulness, always aligning to what is true and right. What you may recognize is exactly what John says about Jesus. We saw His glory, and it was the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't just embody glory. He was the unique glory of the one and only God. And John says, we saw this. Even though he became a man, he never ceased to be God. Even though he took on flesh, he never ceased to have all of God's glory, fullness of God's character. All that glory was manifested in front of us with this fullness of truth and fullness of grace. And then down in verse 18, John adds, no one has ever seen God, the only God, again the word is monogenes, monogenes theos, the only God, the one who is at the Father's side, he has made him known or he has explained him. No one else could do that. Job couldn't do that. Job says all we hear is a whisper. Moses couldn't do that. Moses said, I, I, I need to see more of your glory. I don't I don't fully understand. Ezekiel couldn't do that. All he could do was add a bunch of words that were kind of like what he saw. No one else could do this, could make known what was formerly concealed. And yet Jesus came with all the attributes of God and put them on display in human form. No one else ever explained the glory of God with such blazing clarity. Only our Savior, who tabernacled among us, who explained, who revealed, who demonstrated God to us so that we could know Him, so that you didn't need to think about God as some distant, inaccessible, person or some distant inaccessible force he came and dwelt among us so that you could know him so that God would be explained to you so that it's crystal clear that he is the source of truth and the source of grace and if you don't know him, let me tell you, there is no celebration of Christmas without the realization of this glory. You can put all the lights you want on your tree. You can spread all the tinsel, surround it with all kinds of shiny 
ornaments, but it is nothing compared to knowing the glory of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the glory of none other than God in human flesh. Father, we're grateful to know this truth, to realize that this man who walked on the earth so long ago was no ordinary man. He was God in human flesh. The exact imprint of your nature, all the radiance and brightness of your glory made known to us. Thank you, O Lord. Thank you that you didn't leave us to wander alone, to never commune with you again, but you came and you dwelt among us. You took on human nature so that you could be with us. What amazing love. And yet in that body, there dwelt all the attributes of your character, all the attributes of your truth and faithfulness and grace and love. We're so grateful that we can know that. We can know it in the person of Christ. We can know it through his salvation. Those who trust in him can know God. And one day we will see you face to face in glorified bodies ourselves, to dwell in your presence forever. We bless you for that and we celebrate that this Christmas season in Christ's name. Amen.